And the more we learn about ADHD, it's really not about attention. It's really a disorder of self-regulation and executive functioning. This is a Therapy for Dads podcast. I am your host. My name is Travis. I'm a therapist, a dad, a husband. Here at Therapy for Dads, we provide content around the integration of holistic mental health, well-researched evidence-based education, and parenthood. Welcome. Well, good morning, good morning. Welcome to the show, uh, Therapy for Dads. I have a special guest on, um, someone that I met through social media, through Instagram a few months back, and we as dads have been trying to connect um, for the past few months and have had, well, just dad and life things come up where we've had to keep rescheduling, rescheduling, but finally we're together. Finally, we're having this conversation. I'm very excited to bring on this show and talk about, I think, a very important topic, something that I in my uh, private practice, in my professional experience, I come across a lot, and it's something that we are seeing more and more of, um, but something I do notice with this conversation, I think there's a lack of good education, of understanding, uh, a lot of misconceptions. So I am bringing to you today Mr. Michael McLeod, who is an ADHD, an executive functioning specialist who works at a Philadelphia um, he's the owner of Grow Now ADHD that services students and families from across the world. He conducts professional ADHD and executive functioning trainings at schools, professionals, and parents, educating them on the most up-to-date research and practices to strengthen executive functioning skills. And I will link all of his content for you in the show notes, but welcome. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. Yeah, so good to have you. So good to have you on. Um, so anything else we need to know about you, Mr. Michael? Uh, yeah, so I, I've been working with uh, with youth pretty much my whole life, uh, summer camps and schools and residential treatment facilities. I'm a licensed and certified speech and language pathologist as well. Uh, and uh, over time, I developed this grow-now model of strengthening executive functions uh, via the concept of internal language. Uh, so really, you know, what I'm trying to do and my mission in life is to get rid of a lot of the misconceptions of ADHD and this old outdated view of ADHD and executive functions as someone with ADHD myself. Uh, it's very, uh, it's a passionate topic. Uh, and, um, all the students I work with are just incredible people, incredibly families, incredible families. I just absolutely love what I do. I'm very passionate about my work and, being able to work with these incredible students and families each and every day, uh, out of my practice and on Zoom, uh, it's a it, it's such a privilege and it's uh, it's something I love to do. Yeah, I, I could tell you you care about this topic and from your own experience and then working with individuals with ADHD, like it's that kind of combo. And I could tell you love it. And you know. absolutely, yep, yep. So yeah. so language is such a uh, a foundational focus of you know what our brain does, mm. uh, the in the ability to use nonverbal nonverbal images in the brain and verbal images in the brain to visualize to ourselves to talk to ourselves to have an internal system of checks and balances uh, that's really the foundation of self-regulation and the more we learn about ADHD it's really not about attention it's really a disorder of self-regulation and executive functioning. So let's just jump right in. I think we're already starting to talk about this first question is well where are some of the most common 
ADHD misconceptions? Absolutely. So a lot of it really stems from that name ADHD. And a lot of the great leaders in the field, you know, this field of ADHD is such a small little niche. Uh, and there are some incredible leaders in this field, like Dr. Russell Barkley, Dr. George McCloskey, Sarah Ward, who was a, who was a fellow speech and language pathologist, uh, Peg Dawson, the author of Smart But Scattered. Um, you can look at your, you know, Attitude Magazine, ADD Attitude Magazine, your local chat organization. A lot of the great uh, leaders, the prominent leaders and the local leaders are really pushing to have this name changed in the DSM, the Diagnostic Standards Manual, uh, because it's really a very misleading title. It's mm. not an attention deficit, first of all. It's individuals who have an abundance of attention, too much, att- too much attention to give, where they're mm. responding to all of the stimuli in the environment, uh, and they're easily getting distracted and responding to everything out there. And this heavy focus on hyperactivity, inattentiveness, whether it's inattentive type or hyperactive type or combination type, it's really, um, it's really so focused on the external you know, kids mm-hmm. who can't sit still, kids who can't focus, kids who are lazy, kids who are disinterested. And it's it's causing these kids to not get the therapy that they need. It's sending them to outdated and ineffective therapies, whether it's behavioral or, you know, occupational, whatever it may be, uh, and into these social skills groups because of things they're seeing externally. But it's really the internal executive function skills that are lacking. And Dr. Russell Barkley talks about this, Sarah Ward talks about this, is it's really EFDD, Executive Functioning Developmental Disorder or Developmental Mm. Delay, um, Mm. in varying degrees of severity. Uh, So that prefrontal cortex of the brain right behind the forehead. So over time, the brain develops from back to front. And the front of the brain is the last to develop. And that prefrontal cortex, the front of the brain, isn't really fully developed until around 25, 26, between 25 and 30. Uh, So those executive functions develop over time through relationships and experiences. Uh, So we live in a world right now where relationships and experiences are uh, significantly decreasing, and we can certainly talk about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But individuals with ADHD, are uh, they have a significant developmental delay of that prefrontal cortex. It's developing slower. There's lower rates of uh, dopamine in the brain. ADHD is a disorder of structure, function, and development of the brain. So this is a true neurodiverse population in that the brain is different in terms of structure, function, and development. And, mm. it, and all the areas that are affected are the areas that deal with self-regulation, self-motivation, social emotional decisions. Um, so it, this disorder of ADHD really uh, needs to have a heavier focus on emotion management, uh, emo- uh, ability to self-regulate, self-motivate, and uh, really be able to manage your overall external behaviors internally. Hmm. Uh, and I think I have seen that as well, uh, some of these misconceptions. Um, I've done some of my own reading on this over the years and better, under, better understanding because I'd get all these kids with ADHD and it's something that I wasn't, you know, I didn't know much about other than, oh, it's the classic stuff, those misconceptions, like fidgety, can't sit still, can't focus, hyperactive, you know, kids bouncing off the walls. Well, I have seen those kids that for sure they have those classic, I would say, hyperactive, They're, they, you know, they really do. But um, something else I heard, I can't remember if I read this or or, or heard it, I, I, don't, I can't tell you, but 
it was that kind of hyperactivity of the mind where it's more of, like you said, there's too much focus uh, on too many things, which can look like and appear physically as either bouncing or where they kind of shut down and just don't, they're not there and present because there's like, there's too much stimuli. Um, you got it. And that was such a eye opener. I remember when I was first trying to understand it, I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. That is, you know, and, and with my understanding too of the brain, the developmental part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, like I know a lot about that because I do a lot of emotional control with, you know, with, with adults or, you know, teens or young adults and trying to understand, hey, trying to build this part of the brain, you know, often when we're triggered in our emotional state and we're heightened, we're not actually operating out of our part of our prefrontal cortex, even as adults, we're operating out of our like amygdala and our hippocampus and all these you things and teaching different skills to like help bring this back online. So I'm, I do that all the time. And then when I heard ADHD, I'm like, oh, this makes sense. It's at least how I, and you tell me if this is a good analogy, I often use this. It's like, you know, someone with ADHD is, we're all swimming uh, in a pool, but people with ADHD, it's like they're swimming with one arm versus yeah. two. So they're there, but it's like they're trying, they're having to over, like work overtime to keep up. Um, That's exactly what it is. Okay. And, and the way Dr. Russell Barkley describes it is, you know, it's not a disorder of attention. It's a mm. disorder of performance. Mm. Uh, and it's not a, it's not a disorder of intelligence it's a disorder of performance. So these, so really what ADHD does is it splits the, the brain in, in half between performance and knowledge. So these mm. kids really know the rules. They know what they have to do. Uh, they've, uh, they, they've been through these experiences before, but when it comes down to the natural environment right there in the moment, it's very hard for them to use what they know and show mm. what they know. Uh, so they've been through these social skills groups where they know not to alienate them, alienate themselves. They know how to not, uh, you know, uh, upset a peer or dominate a conversation. And they've been through these negative emotions before when it's hard for them to make and keep friends. It's hard mm -hmm. for them to apply what they learn in the classroom to tests. They struggle with reading comprehension and writing, and they have all these negative emotions and negative feelings that they've been through and they want to improve. And kids with ADHD have such great empathy and they want friends and they, uh, they want to have lots of friends. They want to have experiences, but because of their ADHD, mm -hmm. they end up getting stuck in video games and computers and internet and phone and screens. And kids with ADHD are heavily prone to screen addictions and video game addictions. Mm -hmm. uh, but overall, their ability to perform in the natural environment and show what they know and use their social skills and use their academic executive functioning skills and learn from past experiences. It's so hard for them. And that's really what leads to all of this negative self-talk. So mm -hmm. individuals with ADHD have very high levels of negative self-talk, negative mm -hmm. self-image. And this is what leads to a lot of the comorbid issues of anxiety, depression, uh, yep. you know, whether it's an eating disorder or whatever it may be, mm. uh, so many times ADHD comes with something else. I, and I could, uh, for sure back that up with what I've seen a lot of comorbidity, especially if it's not diagnosed or not caught, um, oh, yeah. you know, it, it presents itself as depression, 
uh, anxiety work people do they just give up because there's this expectation of the the child the teen like why can't I just like what's something I can't seem to fo- I can't seem to focus or on one task I can't seem to get anything done and so they're so distractible because they're thinking of ten thousand things so then it can manifest as like shame and something's wrong and mm-hmm. so then they give up and it's like hold on there's something else going on and then you get tested you're like oh hey look at this you've been struggling with this and it's and then. For some, it could help because they realize, oh, it's not me. It's like my brain, you know, and that's something that I can't control. But there's ways to learn to, to get help. Um, so the next question, which I think is naturally going there, what are some of the warning signs that you would say that parents, dads, moms should be aware of that would warrant further testing or further exploration that you would, would want to be looking for? Absolutely. So really what you want to see, especially in, you know, some of our younger kids is are there chronic issues? So are these things coming up over and over and over again, and you're not seeing this child learn from the experiences? So quite often, are you getting calls from the teacher saying, this student has trouble sitting still, maintaining attention to task, uh, uh, maintaining play with a peer and interacting positively with peers and showing flexibility and understanding others' perspectives and having 50-50 reciprocal conversations. Mm. Uh, so if they're having a lot of difficulty during unstructured time, you know whether it's circle time or play time or recess or whatever it may be, they're really struggling interacting with peers positively and consistently, that's a big warning sign. So mm. during that unstructured time, because ADHD kids really struggle during recess, during lunch, uh, when everyone else is kind of just reading the room and conforming to... What, everything, what the environment kind of calls for, like being quiet in the library or sitting and eating and staying at your table and interacting with everybody at the table uh, and kind of following along with those social norms and the social environment, if they're struggling with that consistently. So when you mm. look at all of the testing for ADHD, it's not really your typical tests where the student takes the tests, you, you check the scores, and you say, okay, based on the student's scores, he has ADHD. Most of the ADHD tests, like the, uh, the brief, the behavior rating inventory of executive functions, the McCloskey scales, uh, so many tests really uh, are observational rating scales. So it's individuals who are with the student the most, observing them in the natural environment and taking note of what they see, mm. uh, never uh, moderately or often. Uh, so we're, we're measuring how often we're seeing these behaviors and how often we're seeing these troubles. Mm. Uh, and that's really the way it's always going to be for executive functions. There's never mm. going to be a standardized test to measure executive functions because executive functioning is a true internal skill. It's basically mm. your imagination. Uh, mm. So there's no way to effectively measure that. We have to observe the student. We can look at writing samples, reading comprehension samples, some social pragmatic tests here and there. There's mm. lots of tests we can do but we're not going to get a true picture of this student unless we're doing parent interview, teacher interview, and a very deep case history. Yeah. So really what we want to do, these all these warning signs we're looking for, ha- most of them really have to be observational. So mm. we're looking at the unstructured of lunch and recess and playtime. How are they conforming with peers? Are they standing out like a sore thumb? Are they having a lot of difficulty, emotional break, consistent emotional breakdowns? That's a big one. Uh, inability to maintain play, like I said. But in the classroom, are they having trouble initiating non-preferred academic tasks? Are they having trouble getting starting, persisting, completing? 
Uh, how are they doing during, during group work? What are they doing during you know, lectures? Those sorts of things. So, so, so much of these warning signs are observational. But we have to see, you know, every kid gets distracted. Every kid has emotional breakdowns. Every kid has issues with peers. But is this happening consistently over and over and over again? You've tried consequences. You've tried talking to them. You've tried everything in the book. And it continues to happen. That's when we have to di- start to dig deeper. Yeah. And you mentioned something, too, which sounds like a possible warning sign when they're, the interaction you were saying um, with other peers and the unstructured where they you saying kind of the 50, 50, uh, back and forth. Um, could you give an example of what that might look like where a kid is maybe a kid who has ADHD where they're in that kind of social environment where there's not that back and forth, like what would that actually look like just to make yeah, it practical? Yeah. yeah. So this is another huge part of ADHD that I'm really passionate about because so few people understand it. So this term ADHD is just about attention, hyperactivity, inattentiveness, And it really causes ADHD to be seen as this academic school-based disorder that's going to affect them with homework and grades and, you know, learning math and science and all that stuff. But that is literally just such a small fraction of what these kids and young adults deal with. Mm. Uh, ADHD is a disorder of executive functions. And part of that is social executive functions. So we have to be really, really aware of that is really what social executive functioning is and just how deeply it affects these kids. And if anything, that's the biggest source of mm-hmm. negative self-talk. And that's the biggest source of anxiety and, and, and issues is the inability to be successful socially. Mm-hmm. So uh, social executive functioning is a huge component of ADHD. So number one, uh, the number one social executive function skill is perspective-taking skills. So mm-hmm. kids with ADHD, ADHD and executive functions, part of that is self-awareness and self-evaluation. So two executive functions are self-awareness and self-evaluation. So those two skills are weakened in individuals with ADHD. The ability to be self-aware, perceive your environment, be aware of your actions and your behaviors in a given environment, and also self-evaluation. The ability to look back in the past and look at how you did something, look at your choices, look at your behaviors, and learn from them, evaluate yourself, and perform better in the present moment by reflecting on the past. Mm. So self-awareness and self-evaluation are impaired. So the ability to think about your own thinking, metacognition, is a big issue for these kids. And it's even harder for them to understand the metacognition and the thinking of others. So Mm. what types of thoughts am I putting into others' heads? Am I giving them uh, cringy thoughts about me? Am I giving them really positive thoughts about me? Am I respecting their interests? Am I, you know, uh, am I making them feel good about being with me? So am I, what types of thoughts and feelings am I giving off based on my body language, my interactions with them, the words I'm using, all of those sorts of things. So understanding uh, your effect on others is a major part of ADHD. Mm-hmm. And then we, uh, we talked about situational awareness, which is the ability to stand back and read the room. So this is part of that internal language processing of ADHD. So the like we talked about in the cafeteria, in the lunchroom, the ability to stand back and mm-hmm. observe what everybody else is doing. So in, mm-hmm. in the library, everyone's sitting down and being quiet. The kids with ADHD will have difficulty recognizing the environment, reading mm-hmm. the room, and sitting down and, uh, and 
and uh, doing what everybody else is doing. In the yeah. classroom, every student might be coming to class, putting their backpack in the cubby, sitting down, starting the do now, you know, opening their books and getting started. The kid with ADHD is going to have difficulty getting started because mm. they're not reading the room and seeing what everybody else is doing. Mm. And uh, you see this in unstructured environments and recess as well. So sort of reading the room and making your body, your language, your behavior look like everybody else. That's a big mm. part of it. Uh, and then that social reciprocity, like I talked about, is really understanding the 50-50 of relationships. So uh, kids with ADHD really struggle with that. And they really get used to uh, relationships where it's more taking than giving. So uh, kids with ADHD can do quite well at emotional manipulation of parents, uh, manipulating parents into getting that extra screen time, getting that extra game, you know, sneaking. They're really big at sneaking extra screen time and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, and they get so used to uh, taking and, 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 and taking and getting and getting and getting and they really are not used to giving and, uh, and uh, get, having that 50-50 of relationships. And that mm. often trickles down into social relationships where you see them dominating conversations, only talking about their preferred interests and not mm. really taking time to get to know others on a, beyond a surface level basis to mm. allow for a deeper relationship. And mm. like I said before, that's really what these kids want. They want deep relationships. They want to do things after school with peers, on the weekend with peers. They don't want to go home and play video games for five, six hours. That's not what they truly want. They want to go out and ride bikes and do things and have deeper relationships and have people to text, have people to call, have people to FaceTime. But you have to go beyond the surface level and build a deeper relationship than just a couple of topics here and there. You have to have a true interpersonal relationship, uh, and that requires a 50-50 relationship. Hmm. Gosh, I mean, hearing it put that way is so clear. It's like very clear. Um, the, to understand that that's what you're seeing with kids and to see that that social reciprocity, that 50-50, that social awareness, that, you know, reading the room and that these kids are really, it's not that that's their fault. I and mean, what are some of the common labels? Before ADHD, I mean, what are some of the labels these kids get typically that you hear? No, there's, it's, it's endless. You know, the, the number one is obviously yeah. lazy. Yeah. You get lazy, you get non-compliant, you get rude, disinterested, rigid, uh, it's, it, it's, it's insane. You know, there, mm -hmm. uh, back in the past, we used to say, uh, sluggish cognitive tempo. That was, you mm -hmm. know, if, if you remember that term, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was around yeah. for a while. Uh, and you know, these hyper crazy kids, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing is the lazy, you know, mm -hmm. the laziness, the rude, the non-compliance, all of that is just completely ridiculous because it's mm -hmm. truly against who they are. Yeah. Um, and it's so hard for them to regulate their behaviors that it's that the external that we see from these students is absolutely the opposite of who of of who they are congruently and who mm -hmm. they like who they are internally. So the mm -hmm. internal external are not congruent with each other. Yeah. Uh, so it's there's super a disconnect important. there. Yeah, there's a major disconnect. Yeah. yeah, big big disconnect. You know, if we were to define it, like kind of what what is ADHD? You kind of mentioned earlier of executive function, but what is ADHD and um, you know, how does it, what part of the brain is it really, which you mentioned again, but if we were to kind of put it simple and a nice bow and a present to give to parents or understanding, here's what ADHD is and here's how it affects the brain. Of course. Yep. So ADHD is a developmental delay, a disorder 
of the prefrontal cortex and executive functions. So many parents call me and say, oh, my son has ADHD and executive functioning challenges. There's no end there. It's Mm -hmm. ADHD is a disorder of executive functions, period. End of story. So you can have executive functioning disorder. You can have executive function delays and not have ADHD, sure. But if you have ADHD, you have executive functioning challenges, period. End of story. Mm -hmm. Uh, So ADHD is EFDD, executive functioning developmental delay. Mm -hmm. And the way I define it is based on four separate pillars. So Mm -hmm. ADHD is a disorder of self-regulation and the ability to regulate your language, your emotions, your body, your behavior in various environments, self-motivation towards non-preferred tasks, and that's Mm. super important, is every student with ADHD has something that is preferred that they can maintain attention to for hours and hours and hours. That's that hyper-focus, So, which 10 times out of 10 tends to be a screen, a game, or technology, So, uh, but it's hard for them to motivate towards, you know, school, homework, exercise, eating healthy, uh, those sorts of things, Mm -hmm. Uh, doing anything non-preferred or different. Uh, Self-evaluation, learning from past experiences and applying it to the present. And number Mm -hmm. four, self-awareness. So being aware of your actions and your behaviors and the effect on others, that cause and effect, right? Mm -hmm. Your overall self-awareness, so you're more aware of how you are in an environment. So self-regulation, self-motivation, self-evaluation, self-awareness, all of those four self-based skills are significantly impacted with ADHD and this executive functioning delay. Mm -hmm. And those four pillars are founded upon this concept of internal language, which is the grow-now model of internal language. So internal language is two separate skills that are weakened in ADHD and disconnected. And in the non-ADHD brain, these two skills are developing at a typical pace and they work together in harmony. But with ADHD, they're weakened and disconnected. Mm-hmm. So the first is nonverbal working memory. So, AD, so this concept of working memory, working memory is, is really it's using your memory. So using your memories and working with them. That's the best way to describe working memory. You're working with your memories. It's not just a memory you think of and feel good. It's something that you use. It's memories that you use um, to, uh, to change who you are. And that's executive functions. Executive functions is taking an action to yourself mm. to change what you would have done on impulse. So an mm. internal system of checks and balances. So this nonverbal working memory is the visual imagery system of the brain. In, simpli- in simplistic terms, it's your hindsight and your foresight. So it's the ability to re-image the past and learn from past experiences, and also the image to visualize the future so you can plan, prioritize, problem solve, and anticipate what's coming, becoming a future thinker so that you're thinking about the future and seeing what's coming so that you can get what, what's done now. For example, you're at home, it's time to do homework, you see yourself in, in class tomorrow, everyone turning in their homework, everyone getting grades, or you see a test the next day, oh, I better study now. Uh, or, or, oh, our homework's getting graded tomorrow, I better get it done now. Uh, you know, or you can see yourself in the future playing your game and say, let me get my homework done now so I can have fun later. Uh, so it's visualizing the future so it changes your present behaviors. So that's nonverbal working memory, which is the foundational skill of all executive functions. Mm. All executive functioning starts 
with nonverbal working memory and the visual imagery system. So it's super important to think about visual images, the imagination, making mental movies. That's such a crucial part of ADHD and that's what these kids lack. And then there's verbal working memory, which is the self-talk system. So the ability to have an internal dialogue, the ability to talk to your brain and have a conversation and, and, and coach yourself and uh, be able to motivate yourself and you know, uh, self-coping skills and self-regulating skills to have that conversation. And when we can apply our self-talk to the images of nonverbal working memory, so first we're visualizing and we're saying, okay, if the future looks like that, if it looks like that, then right now I need to do this, which is the mm-hmm. self-talk. Yeah. So, so we're yeah. combining the visuals with the self-talk. And yeah. that is what kids with ADHD simply are not doing. And uh-huh. so for, for years it was hyperactive impulsiveness. And as these kids are so impulsive, impulsive, but they really just weren't stopping, visualizing, talking to themselves, and then acting. Uh, yeah, that's that, that's that barrier between the two is that, that, oh my gosh, it makes so much sense. That's so clear. That like, yeah, nice. It's so, so well, so clear, so specific. So really it makes, it makes you understand more what's happening in the brain. Cause really, as you said, this is a brain issue. This is a executive functioning issue. It's the brain itself that is lacking. It's not the will of the child. It's not, no way, just, no way. You know, it's not just that they're defiant or that they're, you know, weird or, you know, all the things that the terms that could be used. It's like, no, there's part of their brain, which all kids, by the way, have a, a part of the, they're all developing. All kids are developing, which is why we see kids struggle with emotional states and I mean, even as yep. adults. But these kids, it's just another, it's just, it's more difficult. There's, because there is this big disconnect between these, these internal states of the, the dialogue and the assessment. Like that's, wow, I love how you said that. That's, it gives me, I'm visualizing it too. I'm there you go. The working nice. in the brain and the splitting. I'm like, oh, it makes so much sense. And now for a short break. So if you're looking for ways to support the show and my YouTube channel, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads. There you can make a one-time donation or join the monthly subscription service to support all that I'm doing at the intersection of fatherhood and mental health. And all the proceeds go right back into all the work that I'm doing into production, into continue to grow the show to bring on new guests. So again, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads. Thanks. And let's get back to the show. And so let's say, you know, your parents, they're seeing this. Now what? So they see these things, they're, they're noticing some stuff. What What is a typical standard step to take if they're like, hmm, maybe what, what, what would they do? Yeah. So, uh, uh, obviously, you know, you want to have these conversations with your pediatrician and with your doctors to, to figure out, uh, if medication is the right route, what are the, what are the right therapies? Uh, there's a lot of stigma around ADHD medications, of course, because they're oh, yeah. abused by college students and things like that. Uh, but you know, and there's also so many different medications and different mm-hmm. dosages mm-hmm. and it's hard to figure it out. It, it, it can affect sleep. It can affect appetite. But ADHD medication is one of the most researched medications in psychiatry. So the medications are legit. Mm -hmm. They are beneficial. It's just a matter of time of finding the best one and the right dosage. Uh, So definitely talk to your doctors about Mm -hmm. that. Uh, But in the home, really the most important thing for parents to do is it's so important to have structure, accountability, and expectations in the home. That is the most Mm -hmm. important thing. So there's lots of research and benefits into authoritative parenting for kids with ADHD. 
in terms of helping them to grow up and be independent and have positive relationships. I don't like that term, authoritative parenting, yeah. because it's so close to authoritarian parenting, which is basically, uh, right. you know, elite, which is just, you know, abusive, basically. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. authoritative parenting, uh, I call it democratic parenting or reciprocal mm. parenting. Because when you really look at what authoritative parenting is, is it's, hey, let's talk about this. Let's have a conversation. Let's come up with a plan. Uh, let's sit down and let's figure things out. It's, you know, it's having high expectations and being there for the student and open communication, open expectations. Um, and, you know, the last thing, you know, the biggest mistake I see parents make is giving their kids open access to screens and games. So this term open access is the most important thing. So basically you give them an Xbox, you give them a PlayStation, you give them a Nintendo Switch, you give them a cell phone, and it's just theirs and they can play it whenever they want. It's in their room, their controllers are there, and it's up to them. You, the kid decides when they play, when they do homework, and that's it. And it's, we have to remember these kids have great difficulty self-regulating, self-motivating, self-evaluating. They can't, you know, 10 times out of 10, they're going to choose that video game over homework, over going outside, yeah. over calling a friend, all of those things, because it's easy. You know, a video game, you know, playing a video game is like going to a casino for someone with gambling addiction. It's the same thing. <laughs> it's a great it's the exact same. Yeah, <laughs> it's the exact same thing. It's like a gambling addiction. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, they're in control. They're getting constant dopamine drip. And they'll play those video games for hours and hours and hours. They'll be on TikTok and social media and YouTube. They'll watch videos of someone else playing a video game for hours and hours. Uh, and and they're, they're loving it. And then by the time they're done, all of those positive endorphins and positive chemicals of the brain are, are depleted and they're irritable for the rest of the evening. They go to school the next day and they can't maintain attention because the only thing that can stimulate their brain are these screens. Uh, so screens are really dangerous to these kids, and we have to we have to be very open and honest about that. You know, screens have become such a big part of our lives where it's almost like a stigma to say something negative about them. You know, mm -hmm. let the kid have a laptop, let him have a phone. If he doesn't have a phone, he won't fit in socially. He'll be alienated. All these things. We have to be honest about how dangerous screens are, especially for kids with executive functioning delays. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, ma making sure you don't have open access screens and games and you have screen time limits on the phone. That's the most important thing is, you know, only allow games, only allow preferred tasks after non-preferred is completed first. Have mm. that structure where it's non-preferred before preferred. You know, mm. don't allow them to just have, be able to download any app and play games on their phones all day or watch YouTube videos all day. You know, have them have, uh, you know, roles in the house where they're cooking, they're cleaning, mm. they're walking the dog, they're exercising. You know, kids with ADHD thrive under roles and jobs where they can become competent and build confidence. Mm. You want them to start packing their own lunch and cleaning their own room and, uh, you know, interacting with the, with, you know, have family game night, all these different things. Uh, mm. So you want to have roles in the house, you want to have responsibility, you want to have accountability. Uh, and parents, you want to make, you know, make sure that, you know, you allow your child to struggle sometimes. Let's allow them to learn from natural consequences. The school has to be able to hold the kid accountable to missing homework, late assignments. That can't all fall on the parents' shoulders. The, the teachers and the schools have to hold the kids accountable as well. 
in mm. terms of getting things done on time and all of that. Mm. Uh, so having structure, having accountability, making sure they're having exercise, making sure they're having varied experiences. You know, we don't want these kids coming home from school every day, coming home and staying home, coming home and staying home. Like when you start to notice, hey, Monday through Friday and even Saturday and Sunday look exactly the same for my son. He spends all day in the basement. He plays games. He comes upstairs to eat every now and then. That's not really what we want. We want them to go outside and exercise and interact with people face to face. So make, make sure they're having varied experiences. Their days look different. They're going out in the community. And they have real interpersonal relationships. Online relationships mm. are not real relationships. They need face-to-face relationships. It's not mm. all on Discord and Snapchat and texting mm. and FaceTime. You know, he, they need to go out and play with people in real life. Yeah, and 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 what they need to do too is is once they get the talk to a pediatrician, once they understand this, once they have structure and the kind of the democratic parenting or authoritative democratic like having these conversations, having limits and rules, giving jobs, giving roles. I mean, these are all things to get them engaged. These are all things to help their brain, really. Really what I'm hearing is helping their brain provide some boundaries for their brain to kind of develop in a way that they still have freedom, they still have decision power, and yet within these limitations to help them. It's like we're helping guide as parents to keep them kind of from, kind of way helping build structure in their brain is what I'm kind of seeing it as or hearing it as. It's like we're trying to kind of help that kind of fill in the gaps where the brain is lacking by doing these different things and by helping out by, okay, we're not just going to sit here doing the screen and do this every day, but we're going to build structure and give it to help that part of the brain grow. So anything they need to do with the school, like if parents don't know, what do I do with the school? Hey, he's got ADHD. What do I need to do? Of course. Yeah. So, so there's going to have to be a school evaluation done to determine if this student needs an IEP where they're getting federally mandated services or a 504 where they're getting basic accommodations. Mm. Uh, So it's very important that it's an IEP or a 504 that goes off of this research on ADHD. Uh, So what I see with a lot of IEPs and 504s is it puts all of the responsibility and all the accountability onto the teacher. You know, the teacher has to make sure that the student is doing these things. So Mm. we need to think about how prompt dependent is this student and how independent is this student? So part of ADHD is you are significantly delayed in your independent skills, and you are too prompt dependent. You're not mm-hmm. ready to go off to college and live an independent life because you're so used to being prompted by your teachers and prompted by you know adults. And if it wasn't for your parents doing so much behind the scenes, and if it wasn't for your teachers doing so much for you at school, you would completely flounder and fall apart. And then these kids go off to college and they they fall apart the first semester because they're so prompt dependent on their IEP or their 504. So it's super important that the IEP and the 504 put the responsibility on the student and it's fading adult prompts over time. And this Mm -hmm. all depends on the individual, the severity, you know, what exactly is lacking, what we're talking about. It's individual based, it's experience based, but we have to remember that Uh, we're focusing on getting them ready for life after the IEP. IEPs Mm -hmm. are not lifelong. IEPs don't last forever. 504s don't last forever. And colleges may say they have great supports. They have an office of disability services. They have counseling. They have all these things. But most of the time, those things really fall short and are nothing like what a high school can offer. Um, And America recently now leads the world in first semester college dropouts. So a lot mm. of the and a lot of these kids had 
IEPs, 504s, and did really well academically because of the heavy supports of the IEP and the 504. But once that document goes away and they go to college, they don't, they can't be successful. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's very important that it's not just these external accommodations, you know, giving them preferential seating, giving them extra time, giving them ability to take tests in a separate room. These are all good things. Great. Like, and, and some of those things can transfer to college, but we also have to recognize that we also have skills we have to strengthen skills we have to develop. So it can't just be accommodations, accommodations. It also has to be teaching the student to gain these skills themselves, self-advocate, self-regulate, self-motivate, gaining these internal skills so that they're successful once those documents go away. Hmm. I would assume then with that, it's working, you know, obviously with parents, because if they don't know, they need to do that. It's obviously, if they get the IEP, because you're right, it is more teacher-dependent, school-dependent. So is this just parents need to understand to help to say, how do we work with the teacher? How do we talk with the teacher of like reducing the prompts over time? Like, is there a standard to that? Is it kind of dependent upon the kid? Like, what would you do? I would say, I would say parents have actually been trained and, uh, you know, based on experience to actually do the opposite. You know, parents now uh, have, you know, due to this system, this broken system, it's, it's not the parents' fault. Parents have been trained to go into these IEP and 504 meetings thinking they have to fight. They have to fight with this team and fight with the team and make sure they get as many accommodations as possible, as many resources as possible. You know, uh, you know, nothing can be on the child's shoulders. It has to be on the school's shoulders. And we know mm-hmm. how, you know, teachers tend to get blamed for a lot of things sure, and schools yeah. get blamed. You know, there's yeah. especially nowadays yeah. with lots of turnover and, uh, you know, lack of resources and funding with schools and all those sorts of things. It's not so much give my kid every accommodation in the book, give him everything, give him everything. He's really struggling. He hates school. He, he has anxiety. He has all these things. It, it's not just accommodations. You know, yes, that's a short term fix, giving mm-hmm. him these accommodations, but we all, we have to think big picture. What do mm. we do when these documents go away? How are we developing these skills now so that he's okay when, the, when he or she ages out of, uh, of this document? Uh, so it's not just getting every accommodation in the book, getting every therapy in the book, getting every resource in the book. Yes, those things are good in the short term, but we also have to start to think about, okay, where is the responsibility? Where is the accountability on the student to, sharp, to start to show that, they can do these things on their mm-hmm. own without mm-hmm. adult support. Mm. And I see that too sometimes often is kids with ADHD, they get the IP, get the 504, and they also throw them in therapy. You know, I get all these kids coming in for therapy, you know, um, it, you know, treats, you know, they need, they need everything. They need their, they need mental health. They need this, they need this. So they have all these things. Um, and hearing what you say is we got to we got to prep them for post high school and how do we start to build these skills how do we start to yes maybe they need you know they might need medication they might need this IP they might need a 504 some of them might need some mental health therapy because of the anxiety or because of the yep. depression and to treat that because I can treat the anxiety, I can help build some skills and CBT, you know, different techniques to help challenge our thoughts, to kind of think differently and oh, yeah. techniques, I could do things like that. But I'm wondering from your expertise and what you've seen and what you do, what are some, uh, you know, what are some practical things you are teaching the parents or the student or the kid of to build that skill? Like you know, if you could give, not to give away your whole, all that you do, because obviously, you know, you have a, a practice that you do, but I'm wondering <laughs> what are a few couple things that, you try to help practically to help them build that skill so they can be more successful. 
Well, number one is there has to be some type of practice and exercise towards the, the skills of internal language, the foundational skills of ADHD and executive functions. So nonverbal working memory and verbal working memory, visual imagery and self-talk, making mental movies and talking to your brain, those skills have to be worked on, period. That's mm. super important. You know, visualizing the future, learning from the past, stopping the ability, like we, we always hear that phrase, stop and think. And mm. that's really what kids with ADHD don't do, but that's such a vague, simplistic thing. It's really stop, pause, visualize, talk to your brain, and then act. So, mm. you know, whether it's like you said, some mindfulness, uh, mindfulness is great, kids' yoga is great, uh, depending on ages and the individual, of course. But there has to be practice on on teaching these kids to stop, visualize, and talk to their brains. That's number one. Uh, really, number two is is uh, you know teaching these kids to set goals. You know, set goals, track the goals, and hold them and hold themselves accountable, and see if they're successful or not. That's so important. Um, so uh, you know, with what you see with IEPs and five hundred fours, is it's always the teacher or the therapist or the school staff who knows what the goals are, keeps the data, tracks the goals. You know, when it gets to be a high school student, why aren't they taking the data? Why aren't they tracking the goals? Why aren't they making the goals? You know, they should be attending the 504 meetings. They should be hearing the feedback from the teachers. They should be setting their own goals. You know, really what I've seen a lot of successful schools do is they'll have the student meet with their counselor, their teacher, whoever it may be, whoever they have the most positive relationship with, meet with them on a Monday set goals for the week, review the week, track things, you know, mm -hmm. write in the agenda, fill things in, preview the entire week, make predictions, visualize the week, talk to yourself, create some self-talk scripts for when things come up. And then on Friday, review all of the predictions, review the mm -hmm. goals, take data, see where they were successful, where they weren't successful, what ended up being better than they expected, what was worse than they expected. You know, having that person to hold them accountable and then it fading back over time. So mm. we're talking maximum support in September and then minimum support in June uh, or May mm. or June. Uh, so, you know, having a, a positive relationship with the school staff is really important. Uh, you know, relationships first, of course, with these kids and engagement first, motivation first. You know, executive functions are not developed by sitting at a table and doing worksheets. You know, you have to have mm. a relationship. You have to do these internal practices but having the ability to, for the student to really understand what goals are, what they're working towards, the cause and effect between their choices and their behaviors, and how it impacts the goals, uh, it's a process. And it's a, mm -hmm. it's a marathon, not a sprint. And would that be the same thing with the, you know, this is, sounds like more of the academic side. Um, what about the behavioral side? What, what, what would be a practical thing with that, with some of the behaviors, the, you know, the... the, the reciprocal play or conversation or maybe awareness like would it be similar or something different you would do there yeah so uh what we see in the schools is we see kids having these behaviors and adults tend to step in and talk to them and throw language at them and talk to them to calm them down and to suppress the behaviors as quickly as possible to make life easier for everybody mm -hmm. so that is part of prompt dependence so these kids are getting dysregulated and the teachers have to come in and squash it and end it and take care of it as quickly as possible. But really what we want is for this student to be able to regulate their emotions on their own without mm -hmm. an adult having to step in. Because let's be honest, every kid, every teen, every adult 
gets dysregulated and pissed off by people every day. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it's okay for a for a three year old to you know to cry on the floor and kick and scream. But teens and adults can't do that because we can regulate our emotions and cope and deal with those things. Mm. So we need the child to work on developing their own safety plan, their own self-talk. So, hey, and help them to have the self-awareness and the self-recognition that, okay, I'm starting to get a little elevated. I'm starting to get angry. I'm starting to get frustrated. This person's upsetting me. I don't feel so good right now. Mm. What can I do? Can I go get a drink of water? Can I go talk to a teacher? Can I uh, walk away? Can I go listen to music? Mm. Can I do all, the, all of those things? And schools need to be accommodating to those things, to kids to take a break. You know, yeah. for, for kids to, to self-advocate and take a break instead of responding to a negative peer or a negative situation or a negative stimuli is an incredibly positive thing. That's great. You know, the ability to take a break, take a sensory break, do what you need to do, uh, whatever it is, whatever works for that unique individual, that's great. But the goal is for that student to do that, recognize their emotions, start to recognize when they're leaving baseline, they're getting angry, they're getting frustrated, and then following the safety plan on their own without a visual, without a prompt, without an adult. And if they're doing that on their own, that's the ultimate goal. Mm. You mentioned quickly this, and it's something that, gosh, now it's not going backwards in the questioning, but you said sensory. Yeah. Uh, can you speak more to that quickly? Is it is sensory where you see with kids with ADHD where they can have like sensory overload where they kind of get drained? Like, is that you see that often with kids? Yeah, with ADHD? It, it, it certainly can. Not every kid with ADHD has that, but some of them certainly can. And you know, this is the whole thing with ADHD is often comorbid with other things. So mm-hmm. this is all part of having a very comprehensive and in-depth evaluation. So if there is someone that has auditory sensitivity, uh, overall uh, you know, tactile sensitivity, whatever it is, it's very important to have that in-depth evaluation to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they can get easily overwhelmed in certain situations, and that's due to the lack of the internal self-coping skills and, yeah. and all those sorts of things. So really figuring out where the sensory issues lie and how that can be treated with the appropriate clinician uh, is super important. And Mm -hmm. that's something that should absolutely be in an IEP or a 504 because that's a daily struggle this student is dealing with that's internal that we don't know unless we dig deep. Yeah, and where would parents get tested for that if they if they felt there was also a sensory issue? Is that also through the pediatrician or someone else? Uh, that could be through an occupational therapist. So occupational yeah. therapy can certainly do that. Definitely talk to your pediatrician first, uh, so they can you know lead you in the right direction. And schools mm-hmm. can do that evaluation as well. Yeah. Okay. That's because I've seen that too with kids with sensory issues, where I feel like there's they get overwhelmed, and it's like mm-hmm. you gave the analogy before of like if they're on YouTube all day. You know, and they're already drained. So now that now they're expected to perform or be engaging, but they're even more they're farther away now. But I feel like I've seen kids too, they're in an environment where certain stimuli just kind of drains their emotional tank more. So now they're yep. just done. Uh, and then they also have the, that disconnect between that internal self-talk and everything else. So it's like on top of just that, it's like they're also drained over here more so and they need to recharge. And so it's kind of both and. So I've, I have seen that and you're right, it's, it's a spectrum. And and, and, and we, you could probably speak to this too quickly. ADHD is a spectrum or... Um, oh, yeah. But EF, EFDD, right? EFDD, that's the, yeah, the term. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. a spectrum of severity where you got mild all the way to severe. Absolutely. You got it. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a spectrum. And one of the best ways to describe it is 
you meet one kid with ADHD, you meet one kid with ADHD, period. So mm. there's no two kids with ADHD that are exactly alike, period. I don't care mm. if it's hyperactive only, inattentive only, you know, whatever it is. Every single, kid, every single kid with ADHD is different, and you have to approach it based on interests, relationships, experiences, case mm. history, family values, uh, mm. you know, and really understanding, you know, what the family go- goals are for this student. Mm. Um, so that's super, super important. Uh, and you know, basically as a clinician, if you're treating someone with ADHD or executive functioning challenges, you have to approach it from, you know, understanding what are their strengths, what are their areas of need and what is, what makes this person motivated? What makes this person engaged? Video games. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. It's often the thing. Screen time. Pretty much it. You got it. Uh, but you know, the number one thing is, you know, the best clinicians are the ones who can improvise on the spot. And keep a student uh, incredibly motivated, keep them engaged, keep them laughing. And you have to give them a fresh, unique experience. You know, they're at school all day where basically every class follows this lecture-listen model. Every Mm -hmm. once in a while, there's project-based learning or group learning or a field trip or recess, whatever. But basically, every class is sit at your desk, listen, take notes, and take a test next week. Uh, mm-hmm. so every, and then they go home and they play games and they're on games all day and they eat dinner and they go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So if you're able to give them something novel, something different, something engaging, get them moving, get them up, get them out of their seats, uh, and get them engaging in a positive way, mm-hmm. then you're going to be onto something. Yeah. So it sounds like our traditional model. And again, this is not on, unfortunately teachers are overworked. Uh, they do, they have a lot on their plate. They're trying to wrangle, you know, 30, 40, 50 kids with an array of, needs uh so it's definitely not all on the teacher but um i think i also understand typical our traditional schooling that you know uh lecture note taking is doesn't always it's not the really best for every student especially probably kids with efdd oh um, absolutely absolutely but we live in a world where that's the primary kind of model of learning is this kind of sit sit <laughs> you yep. know it's just sit 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 and it's the same thing all day and so it can make sense why those kids struggle more because it's 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 not novel enough it's not the learning is too you know rigid and too uh mundane over and over and over and over and over, and over for years that that's what it is and we know that that actually even the research shows and my wife was a teacher for a number of years that then all kids learn that way this is not no, the best way of most of them don't. for a lot of people. Like we need to do things differently, but this is just, this is the structure we live in. And so we, certain people learn really, really well in this model um, that, that really excel in this typical model, but the, you know, a lot that don't, but they're kind of trying to fit into this mold. And I know kids with the EFDD or ADHD um, more, I think have a diff- more difficult time because they need more of that variance, that novelty to kind of change things up, to move, to to do things different, maybe to stand in the back. Or even teachers who have this awareness who are better trained to understand can help, uh, or, you know, maybe let the kid have a little more freedom to do the things differently because they're still engaging and learning as long as it's not disrupting the class, right, that they can maybe stand up. In fact, I heard of a teacher like, yeah, hey, I had some kids, but I let them stand. I'd, I'd give them a corner to go into. I'd give them a thing. Different things they can do to communicate when they – if they can't sit, if they're if they're being overwhelmed in their brain, I I'm understanding with the student. I can help them in the, in vivo in the in the moment to to stay engaged by changing things up for them, knowing that that's what they need to be successful. And so I think that you're right that that, that comes from a, a good clinician, good a good teacher who's aware. But I think the problem is, well, the whole reason why we had this episode is I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, misconceptions, and lack of education. Absolutely, and and this is a big picture issue. 
Yeah. Uh, when you look at you know the laws that have been passed about education and the way things are in this country with standardized testing and school competition and the way teachers are evaluated, teachers now have to teach to the test. And mm-hmm. these standardized test scores reflect on teacher performance, which is yeah. absolutely ridiculous. So yeah. teachers can no longer be creative and teach the way they want to teach and show their passion. Uh, all of the fun and the love and the relationships and the play and the fun has been completely sucked out of uh, teaching by politicians yeah. on both sides of the aisle. Uh, so it's completely ridiculous. Yeah. And you look at what other countries are doing, yeah. like Finland, uh, who are number one in the world in education. You know, it's more mm. project-based learning and community-based learning, and teachers are mm. highly respected there and paid well. Uh, mm. So you know, teachers are the last people we need to blame. Uh, they're the ones that are that chose that profession and are on the front lines and with these kids every day. And mm. it's terrible some of the things that they have to go through. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's lots of research on project-based learning and group-based learning and going out in the community and and interacting with some community leaders and things like that. And this lecture-listen model and standardized test scores are, you know, they're they're BS. Let's be honest; it's it's mm. it's completely ridiculous. You know, SAT scores, ACT scores. uh, state testing, federal testing. It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. Uh, and it's, uh, these, it, they're, they're not focused on the true skills that matter, Mm. executive function skills and life skills, independent skills, social skills. It's, you know, finding the area of a circle and the area of a triangle and knowing your civil war facts and things like it's, you know, these things are not truly beneficial long-term to the health and wellness of this child. Uh, but it's important for standardized testing and they're easily measured and that's all we care about. Uh, so there's a lot of problems in education and that's just, uh, that's just one of them. Wait, your, your SAT scores, they don't, you don't use those this day and all that you do. You don't use those scores and no, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have I have my wallet just to show everybody. Thank you. Here's what I got everybody. Yeah. Here's what um, I got. I'm 35, and here's my SAT scores. Um, yeah, gosh, that's so funny. Um, well, one final question as we close up. We're coming up on the hour. Where can we Where can we find you? How can we get your resources? Where you at? Sure. So my website is grownowadhd.com. So check me out there. You can fill out the information on the website, uh, and that sent, directly sends me an email, and then we can chat on the phone. And yes, you will chat directly with me. I don't have a, a receptionist or anything like that. You will talk to me directly on the phone. Um, so definitely check that out. Uh, on Instagram, it's at GrownowADHD. Also on Facebook and YouTube and those things. Uh, but definitely check me out on Instagram. Follow me there and shoot me a DM. And I would love to, if anyone who took the time to listen to this uh, and, and enjoyed it, I would love to chat with you one-on-one. So, so reach out and we can definitely have a conversation. Yeah. And for as far as any resources that you would say, I know you mentioned Attitude Mag, which is a great website. Um, ADD, Etude, right? Yep. Mag.com is a great one. Anything else that you would plug quickly for, for resources or on your website if you have a resource list? Yeah, definitely check out your uh, local CHAD chapter. So CHAD is like your national organization, uh, children and adults with ADD. And it has different chapters based on the county and the uh, the location you're in. So Find your local Chad. They're a great resource. Uh, watch Dr. Russell Barkley's videos on YouTube. Read his books. Uh, Sarah Ward, uh, the fellow speech and language pathologist at efpractice.com. Uh, love her work. Uh, and just, you know, if, if you're a parent of a child with ADHD or you're a teacher, you know, start to educate yourself on really what this disorder is. And, mm. you know, it's a shame that it's not a bigger part of, you know, master's level training or bachelor's level training. But, 
try to find that information and mm. uh, read some of the great books out there and watch the YouTube videos, podcasts like this, of course, mm. um, <laughs> are, are, are very helpful. Yeah. Well, Michael, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your your expertise, your sharing, your uh, just kind of openness and just directness and education. So I appreciate you, and I'm so glad we finally got to do this. I can't wait to yeah, share man. this. And um, yeah, I think we may need to have a follow-up on some more specifics. I'm sure I'll get some people talking to me about this episode and sure. some other things that just due to time couldn't ask that I wanted to go deeper in. But I think this is there's so much meat in this episode, so much just like, oh, yeah, this makes so much sense. And again, I thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, have a great rest of your day uh, over there in Philly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> thank you, Travis. Yeah, Privilege to be here. <laughs> See ya. Thanks for joining and listening today. Please leave a comment and review this show. Dads are tough, but not tough enough to do this fatherhood thing alone.